uh, episode eight of the Four Lifters by Lifters podcast, and we have my good friend and uh, Penn State champion uh, Stephen Teeters with us today. Stephen won. What year was it? 2014. Uh, so in 2014, Stephen won the uh, the collegiate nationals, which was single ply uh, powerlifting. And uh, he was the first one since, I think, like 1996 to win a first place. Uh, two years prior, I got second place, which is, uh, you know, the first loser. Uh, <laughs> so uh, today, you know, we wanted to bring him on to kind of talk about strength training. Uh, Steven does a lot of seminars uh, where he visits and, and learns. He's been powerlifting for 10 years now. Uh, something like that, yeah. You know, you were, you were an athlete before that? Yep. Um, so he has a pretty extensive background in strength training. I think you're. I was looking up some of your lifts the other day. I think you, you did. Uh, you pulled seven hundred for four. Um, I've pulled seven hundred for four, five with straps, seven twenty-five for a double. Um, what was your best squat? Uh, seven fifty-five in competition. Seven. Uh, yeah, and that was knee wraps. Uh, yes. Knee wraps. What's your best like? No knee wraps, like just you and a belt type of squat. Uh, I wouldn't say like a one rep is really anything special i think i've done 675 in comp no i did 700 right after the u.s open i bombed out came back and i was like well i'm gonna hit something for all of this <laughs> so i did a yolo single at 700 but uh i hit 600 for seven in sleeves and that was like my most like personal validated lift yeah i remember being in a uh, white building and you squat 600 for four and uh and everybody's just like, what the hell is this? You know, nobody's, you know, in college, like you don't see anybody load that many no. plates on a bar, not to mention it's a, uh, you know, they're like your, they're good bars. You know, the Penn State gyms are outfitted really well, um, but it's still not like a powerlifting bar where it, it's no. meant to hold that kind of weight. That bar was not holding weight again. It was a U afterward. So uh, when, when we dig into training, when I competed, uh, I always thought that when you lift in gear, you, you kind of tend to migrate towards like conjugate training. Um, you know, we, when I was, uh, running the team out there, I even took the team out to Westside and we did a visit for a weekend with Louie and, and some of the guys at Westside, we trained there for the day. Uh, we talked for a long time, you know, he taught us a lot of things in a very short period of time. And, uh, I did like that style of training. I, I found it to be very fun. Yeah, um, conjugate. Yeah. Conjugate. Mm -hmm. Um, but what I, I see with your training is you've never really trained that way. No. Uh, and I don't even think you've you've really even tried, right? Mm -mm. So, like, uh, what's the reason behind that? Uh, intuition. So, like, I love – I actually started with bodybuilding. And I went by how the muscle feels. I just listened to how every single piece um, moved throughout, like, that session. And then throughout the week, I'd notice, like, okay – I can do legs twice, and that's that's about where I feel good. If I do it three times, I start to break down. But, like, I never did speed. I just kept trying to get bigger and stronger, like really power-building kind of style. Um, and it was always to be as strong as possible at the weight that I was at while getting as big as possible simultaneously. Okay. Um, but don't you think that they're – like looking back at your training, you know, you've gone through uh, a lot of injuries throughout your time. Do you think that there's any, like looking back, do you think there's any validation to that style of training? And do you think that would have been or could have prevented some of the things that you went through? Oh my God. Any, any formal style would have been better for injuries than what I did. That was like, I basically read from like flex magazines 
And I took that bodybuilding style and then went really heavy. And I think if even like a freaking mad cow, five by five. Um, I did really well in mad cow. Yeah, most really people well. do. Like, so I went into Penn State um, and again, more bodybuilding tr- tr- uh, style mm-hmm. training like you. Uh, so I did the mad cow advance, like the nine week peaking program. Yep. But I didn't know. They just told me to run like a five by five. And that's the one that the spreadsheet that popped up when I Googled it. And that's what I downloaded and I did. And I went from like, I don't know, maybe 315 for five or, you know, I, I think I had a max 405 squat at that point. And uh, within nine weeks, I was doing 405 for five sets of five. Jeez. Yeah. Like my body responded so well to frequency because I was such a noob still. Yep. And even though like I thought I was advanced because I had a 400 pound squat, um, but yeah. my body reacted <laughs> so well to that frequency. Um, you know, to this day, I still tell people, you know, if you're within your first three years of lifting, do that program and it'll teach you so much uh, just about your body and, and, and how important it is to do multiple times a week that same movement. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's, it's just muscle learning. Yeah. Um, but, as far as like conjugate goes, uh, there's, there's, you know, we we're talking about diet before this and how every time you try something, you learn. Uh, one thing that I learned about conjugate is that it, it may not have to be so black and white with like ME, DE days. It may not have to be traditional. Um, when I did that program throughout college, um, me and Burke, uh, we used yeah. to call it Burkeside. Uh, <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, it's almost 10 years ago now. Um, but when I, when I did that program, um, I actually did linear waves within the movements mm-hmm. because I needed to get good at the movement before I could push myself. So if I had a, a variation of a movement, uh, for example, let's say we're doing you know box squats to 130 pounds of tension, right? Mm-hmm. It took me you know one, two, maybe three weeks to get good at that, yeah. and then that fourth week I could just go balls out and really try to hit some good numbers, like a real max effort. Yeah, but that that taught me something too. Is like if you're doing something new don't try to go all the way oh god no because your your body's just not going to handle it um but was there i mean with when you look at powerlifting like you still think of conjugate especially when we were younger you you see the videos of of gene richlack you know benching Mm and you know he has the the skull cap and all that stuff like yeah there was no um there was no drive for you to go that way none i just loved what bodybuilders looked like and like i grew up in a super blue collar area and it's all about like being strong and if it's not functional you're just like uh you're a mere muscle yeah and like i remember my brother saying that stuff like i will not forget it no those are show muscles and i was like no nah, these aren't going to be show muscles so i just wanted to get as muscular as possible and try to be as strong in that frame as i could and where i was before penn state i had no idea what west side was like it's not like instagram where you you look and there's like a thousand different things to see and there's just this massive amount of information. Like it was really hard to access that stuff. So, uh, what I've always noticed with your training is that I would say it it feels like only always, uh, like 65 to 75% of your workload is on the core movement. Oh yeah. I, I can't, I mean, there's numerous times where we would train together and we would mainly squat walk around the gym for a little bit, might do a hamstring curl or something. <laughs> we would stretch and go home. Yeah. Like, uh, so do you think that, that those core movements are 
largely attributed to the physique that you had? I mean, you've always held a lot of muscle, especially like, you know, when you were competing 181s, like you were, you're small. Anybody mm-hmm. that's 181 pounds yeah. is small. Um, but, you know, afterwards, you know, you really blew up. Like you, you, you have a big frame and even now that you haven't been training due to injury as much, but you're still wide. And, uh, it's just the amount of time spent on the core lifts. Yeah. It's from the compound movements like squat, bench, deadlift, overhead press, and maybe pull up or barbell row. One of those, every single workout, even now I still put them in there because I want to get as much bang for my buck as I can. And if I have 30 minutes to train, I want to make sure that I get a good bit out of that 30 minutes. So I can do one OHP. I can do a little giant set and I can get out. And I actually got something that I'm going to be able to keep my muscle. I'm going to still have a decent physique because I had to work hard during that time frame. And frankly, I can't do anything below 100 miles an hour. So like compound movements are perfect for that. Fair. I mean, your intensity when you lift, you're able to, you know, laugh. And then two seconds later, like, I feel like you see red and you could kill somebody. Just that. Yeah. And, And you just turn it on. You have this crazy high intensity and, uh, you know, you just put it all on the bar, which is, it's impressive. It's fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I want to dig on, on a little bit of, uh, like variation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, your, even though your training doesn't say that you, you know, you do a ton of variation because your focus is always on, you know, the, the compound movement. Um, but what's your stance on variation? Um, it depends on for who. So with the people that I train um, who are a little more of an average lifter, um, they work the nine to five. They're not ever looking to compete. I have a lot of variation in there. And that's so that they don't get hurt doing the same movement over and over again. They're probably not going to be intentful enough. Are you talking about like wear and tear on the joints? Yeah. Yeah. You can take on a lot of mileage whenever you're not performing the compound lifts well. And let's face it, even your regular Joe, they like to push themselves. They like to feel strong. They like to feel capable. I don't know anyone that doesn't. Um, but the variation allows them to work everything that might not be getting hit with proper technique. So if you squat well, you're going to use pretty much every muscle in your body. If you're not, there's a good chance you're taking your adductors entirely out of the equation. So when you talk about variation for an average Joe, are you talking about one week they might squat, one week one week they might leg press, uh, one even week like they split might squats? Yeah. Or okay, um, but you're not just talking about like squat variations. No, okay. like um, I think of it now in terms of like lower push, lower pull, okay. upper push, upper pull, and then you've got your isolations from there. Um, and that's actually how I write out my base templates. And then I just kind of plug and chug from there. Um, but that team that seems to keep people, um, in one piece and they feel like they're, they they don't get bored as easily either, but like your athletes, I think that your variation is going to be very limited. So like if you watch Joe Sullivan lift, he's, yeah, he's certainly doing things that he's not putting on the camera. Like he knows more than almost anyone I've ever met, but crazy strong guy oh good god yeah. yeah um but like you'll see ssb you'll see a regular back squat um high bar variants pause variants um like there's just so many different ways that he has to now squat so that he also does not get hurt you have to train that specific lift so that it can continue to get stronger because if you're not working towards your specificity as you know it's like probably in my opinion, probably the most important variable 
um, for your training success. Um, if you're not doing that, you won't succeed. But if you just continue to squat and squat and squat, you're going to have like compression problems. Your scapula are going to be just jacked up. Like you'll, you'll find X, Y, Z problems very fast. I think the biggest issue with doing the same movement week in and week out is not f- being able to fully listen to your body. Yeah. So if something's tight, you know, but you have, you know, let's say you, you normally work up to 400 pounds. Um, you know, this week you're going to do 400 and you're hoping to do, you know, 10 reps. Yeah. Maybe you're, you know, maybe you worked outside for the entire day before your body's a little tight, you know, and you're not quite listening to that, but because you're constantly coming in doing the same movement, uh, over and over again, you're still pushing for that number, but you don't realize you're slightly out of position. Yeah. So when you're slightly out of position, maybe the bar's a little forward, right? So your hips pop and now you're trying to good morning the bar up and your back's bent. And uh, that's almost every time when I see injuries happen yes. is, is because they're trying to do the same thing over and over again, and they're unable to fully listen to their body. Yeah, they get into really bad patterns. Um, and that's, like you said, you nailed it to a T. If you're just doing the same movement, you will have that overuse pattern that becomes an overuse injury. Um, like Kabuki talks about how uh, there's not any one specific position that is actually inherently bad. It's just the one that you're in the most. So, Fair. Yeah. Uh, as far as, like, uh, maybe percentage of risk to injury? Yeah. Okay. So, if you're a power lifter and you want to be a strength athlete, let's say, uh, you know, right now it's, it's June, July. Um, let's say you have a meet at the end of December. Uh, are, you, are you pressing every week? Um, yeah, uh, I, wait, you mean like pressing, barbell. okay, yeah, barbell like pushing, yeah, okay. yeah, barbell pressing, um, this far out, I would say beginner and intermediate. Yes. Very experienced le- level lifter, maybe, but like you're doing close grip, you're doing spodos, um, you're still working that muscle group. You still have a barbell in your hand, but I don't think you're exclusively doing the bench press because you've already grown it for 10 years. You have to grow other things in order to get that last quarter of a percent out of your lift. A and, begin- yeah. And on an advanced lifter, a quarter of a percent could be 10, 15 pounds. Yeah. That's massive. like when we were talking last night about Ryan, you know, the yeah. difference between his 600 pound bench and his 625 is mm-hmm. a world record. Yeah. And that's a big deal. As, and that can, that's a and small that can percentage. Be three years. Yeah. Like that's, that's what's really hard about becoming like that. Well, frankly, now, Joe Sullivan, um, Ben Polak, those kind of guys, is it might take three years for you to hit a PR. So the, the reason why I wanted to bring that up is I've always found uh, that bodybuilders are freakishly strong. And I think it, it's undervalued how strong these guys are. And not everybody. You know, there's some, some guys out there that are, you know, uh, high PED and they, they just try to hit the stimulus mark yep. where they can grow and train every day. And, you know, there's guys like that. But there's still a lot of bodybuilders that are just crazy strong. Uh, I remember seeing, like, 212 guys. Um, maybe they're, you know, 220 in training. And they're benching, you know, four or five for 12 reps. Like, it's, it's an unbelievable <laughs> number, right? You don't um, see powerlifters doing that, really. You don't see powerlifters doing it. So if these guys are stronger, arguably, obviously, you know, maybe the best 220 guy is stronger than that. But if these guys in general are stronger, uh, wouldn't you, I mean, don't you have to draw the line and say that their training is better? 
Um, that's a really, really well thought out and good question. Um, I think it depends on the lift. So I don't see many bodybuilders that squat, bench, and deadlift exceptionally well. I would say you see them probably squat and bench or bench and deadlift, two of the three. But they only have that one freak show lift. And when it comes to becoming that top 1% of a power lifter, you have to have all three. That's why you can pull a thousand pounds, but like uh, Jamal, what's his name? Uh, Jamal B. Like yeah, yeah. Or something I know his Crazy name. Strong. Yeah, I know. Like, oh my God. Dude, it's 2020. It's where uh, we're yeah, at. Yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> um, but like, he pulls a grand, but he didn't become the number one until he could also squat eight. You can't go six, a grand, four. Yeah. Like, you have to have all three. And I don't know that there's many bodybuilders that could do all three that way. Let's uh let's segue into that a little bit. Yeah. So um when I see somebody who's a good deadlifter, automatically like I I try not to spend too much time on Instagram, but if I see something where like there's somebody with a freakishly good deadlift, I automatically go through their profile to see their bench. They don't post it. Yep. Why is that? Ego. But why is somebody <laughs> All right, but why is somebody good at deadlifting and not bench pressing? Um I mean now we're getting into a I think there's there's leverages. That's the most obvious part of that, but there's also psychology. So what makes leverage wise, what makes somebody a good deadlifter and maybe not a good bench presser? Yeah, that's a really good question and really helpful if you're just starting out so that you're not demoralized that you're really good at deadlifting but you suck at bench pressing. It's opposite for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was I was deadlift, it was nice. <laughs> but then I couldn't bench a lot, so it didn't look great. Um it, it comes down to like limb length. So a really good deadlifter, I'm sure the first spot that you look to is where are those fingertips at? Are they like right just below like their hip bone or are they like down getting towards their knees? Like got some monkey arms going on because like, like they're going to be a six, seven, eight hundred pound deadlifter. And oh, yeah, it's a 98 pound check. Not really, but yeah, yeah, you get the idea um, versus like. So that that same long arm. uh is beneficial in the deadlift and you're saying it's detrimental in the bench press yeah like it doesn't it's not a death sentence um oh my god i only know handles um dr deadlift <laughs> yeah i don't know his name Kalen, Kalen okay. Ben Wooler, um pulled a grand sumo um something ridiculous but he's also benching 500 pounds now and when, now now yeah when he started it was not his his good lift but that distance that you have to travel is really the ultimate factor. It's when I go down to get the bar, yeah, I don't have to stand up with the bar very far for the deadlift versus when I'm pressing, um, I have to go from, you know, one meter whole way through versus like 0.6 meter for like a big barrel chest, short arm kind of guy. Yeah. So yeah, it's really leverages and how far you have to move the bar. There's an obvious extra thing there, too. I wasn't sure if you were going to take that bait or not. No, go ahead, take it. Positioning. Positioning. Yeah, and that comes with experience. So, like, knowing, all right, I do have long arms. Do I feel better as my hands are more narrow and maybe I can get a little more tricep? Or do I feel really good out wide and I can shorten the distance of that bar? So you're talking about the distance of the bar path. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that is definitely something that comes into play 
with the deadlift, right? Yeah. Uh, and you're, you're a long-arm person that tends to be good at the deadlift. But to me, my biggest problem in the deadlift is having my hips in a position to be able to push off the floor with crazy emphasis, mm-hmm. okay? And what I see is that somebody with longer arms is able to position uh, their low back and their rear in a better, more powerful position than I can. Yeah. So I don't necessarily attribute it to the range of motion rather than the positioning. Um, I think they almost go hand in hand, and it's just a matter of which way you want to look at it. Like, you have a different leverage so you can get into a different position. Like, their hips can start higher, and most people can pull really well with their back right out of the gate. If you got that long arm, you're in a perfect position to just milk that. Yeah. Um, versus if you have to squat down to the bar to reach it, uh, you're going to have to literally squat the bar, and that's not how you're going to finish a deadlift fall. You're probably going to end up hitching as soon yeah. as it gets heavy. So it's range of motion, positioning. They go, I think it's, it's really hard to separate those two. Okay. Uh, so just talking about the deadlift, um, one thing that I noticed, you know, when I was young, I was like 18 or 19, I was like a couple months into deadlifting. Uh, you know, you, you start, everybody starts out Planet Fitness, right? So, <laughs> so I did the Planet Fitness thing for a little bit. I kinda, yep. You know, I maxed out the, uh, you know, the 60 pound dumbbells. Nice. And you, you move on. And uh, I was at the YMCA and that's the guy who, uh, you know, there's an old guy that worked there and he's the guy that actually got me into powerlifting. Um, <clears throat> so he's in the background of my first 500 pound deadlift and it is atrocious, but I was only two months into deadlifting. Yeah. And I, I deadlifted 500. Um, it was almost all back. But from there, I didn't go up further. And I, to me, I think the reason why is I didn't focus on the the positioning of the lower back at the start of the lift. Um, like that's that's what I attribute it to, because when you when you get to a certain point, you can't finish the lift. Yes. And that has a lot to do with your starting position in the deadlift. Yeah. Um, so I think I know where you're getting at then. And from having coached so many different people with so many different leverages, the where the low back is in the deadlift is a consequence of where the shoulders are. So if you're thinking about, uh, we're going to go to a little physics class here for a minute, you're thinking about some dotted lines from the shoulder and the bar. If you lean over that bar, here's my shoulder, I've got my hand tilted over top of it, because I guess you're listening, so there's no way you can see that, but (laughs) um, when your shoulders are in front of the bar, you've created this extra crank that you have to pull out of that low back, and so your low back may seem like the thing that isn't in position, but it's really that you're over top of the bar, instead like really leaning over it instead of directly in line with your shoulders right on it not behind because you're going to fall backward and you're going to squat it up not in front or else you're just going to pull with your low back and it's going to be atrocious it has to be right in line and so like we teach people stack theory or joint by joint um and you're trying to get all those joints lined up that way you're in a good position so it's not just the low back if the low back's out something else is too it's always a give and take and it's like stealing range of motion from one place or stealing positioning from one place. But some of that will have to do with leverages too, right? Yeah. So it it all kind of plays into effect. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I, I hate to say it, but I didn't figure out my deadlift until I started squatting the bar. And I know it's not Mm. ideal. Um, 
but it can work for you though but it worked for me yep. and and you know what 10 years of deadlifting the other way wasn't working and one day you know i just split it on 585 and I, I put it for you know uh, a single but it was just it clicked like it yep. felt good and most importantly i didn't feel any like torsion on my spine <laughs> yeah that's the most important part <laughs> um and like you know i'm gonna throw this out there because it's really important it's something that i would like to um kind of tackle from where i'm from in central pa like we don't have coaches really like there's not access no just everybody's strong it, yeah <laughs> we're, we're pretty corn fed um but that gets into like breathing and bracing and your positioning will feel infinitely better as you have pressure in your abdomen to keep that spine straight because if there's enough pressure you can try and pull the bar however you want but you can really only move in one certain way to reach the bar for your leverages. And if you're not braced, you can do it almost any way and pull with whatever muscle you got, which, well, let's see if we're going to have to edit this out or not, but Dustin called it muscle fucking it. Muscle fucking it. Yeah. And I was like, I was a great muscle fucker. Like it was fun. It was easy. I'm like, wow, this hurts. That must be right. And then I'm 29 and I feel like I'm 50. Wasn't right. You breathe and brace, you can't do that. You have to get into one position, and it's because there's so much pressure in your belly that your spine's not going to bend to accommodate. So are you big on a belt because it increases core pressure if you know how to use it properly? If you know how to use it, yeah. Yeah. Um, I actually like to learn to brace without it. For newbies, I think it's really good because you have that external cue. Mm -hmm. So you can feel something that you're pressing out on versus like – press my my stomach out what do you mean yeah. like people have no idea what that's like until like the first time they put a belt on they're like oh i can push into this you're like yes there's something that oh okay now i get it there's a physical cue i pull better without one uh do you squat better without one no yeah so it just depends on the lift like yeah. um oh yuri belkin pulls bellless does he yeah yeah it's beautiful it's he's a very he's a he's a a master at his craft yeah 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 it's it's gross beautiful whatever you want to call it (laughs) so while we're still on deadlifts um you got to answer the question sumo or conventional (laughs) oh god like the first four things that come to my mind are like wildly inappropriate and have nothing to do with the actual question um again limb length so if you have no rotation at your hips, you should probably pull conventional. If you've got a little bit of a wider, it's called a Q angle. Um, like women might be a little bit better with it. Um, sumo is probably a little bit better for you. Um, either way, if you're going to deadlift shitty, pull conventional because you're going to drop the bar and like, you can jack up so much by deadlifting sumo wrong. And you can do that with conventional too, but A, you're going to hold on to the bar because your back's in a better position to work and you're not relying on your legs. But I would say build your conventional when you're starting. Sumo, as you get a little bit older, you might find that it's a little nicer on your hips. Um, but really, if you're going to get good at it, I think sumo is easier on you, at least for me. Um, but, but your your squat positioning is is wider. Um, it's it's very balanced. I'm always a big fan of 90 degree angles. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so when How I human of you, yeah, crazy. <laughs> uh, I was wasn't very good at geometry either. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, when I look at somebody's squat, and I know everybody has his squats different. You can't bring a uniform approach to you know teaching somebody to squat, the bench, the deadlift. Um, but for general basis, I like to look at 90 degree angles. And I find that if you're able to get your feet out there and still maintain pretty good angles, like I can't get my feet that wide for a sumo deadlift and not have my knees kind of caving over the bar. Um, you know, there's a lot of muscles that are tight. So what ends up happening is I, I really have a wide stance, conventional deadlift. And I see that a lot with guys that pull sumo and they're like, Oh yeah, sumo is great. But it, if you look, uh, well, the first thing I do is I, I'm weird, so I'll do a screen record, and I'll do their conventional deadlift, and I'll do a collage of their sumo deadlift, mm-hmm. and I'll look at back position. Now, to me, one cue that always uh, sticks with me on the sumo deadlift is nuts to the bar. Yep. Okay? And you're almost in like a, a dancing uh, plie movement, I guess you would say. And uh, Nice. So... <laughs> But but you have to be because that bar path is really you know really it's, straight it's up. It's vertical. Yeah, yeah. and uh, you know there's really no swing motion with it at all, which you may find with a conventional deadlift. Um, not that you should, but you may find it. And uh, I just wasn't able to execute that correctly. So those people should just stay away from sumo deadlifting. Yeah, like I hate to reduce it to that, but. A, if it hurts, no matter what you do and you can't get into a position, either stop doing it or go to someone that actually knows how to do it and ask them what they're doing. Like, you even got a cue that most people don't know. Put your nuts on the bar. Good old Dave Tate. Like, teabag the bar. You open as wide as you can, and you try to sit down onto it, essentially. Um, Sumo's so much more technical and because of that, that's why I say if you're a newer lifter, you should probably start with conventional. You have to learn like how to actively pull yourself onto the bar. And it's like doing a squat with no weight, but mm. you're trying to act as if 500 is on there to get you down there. It's very odd to describe, but it's so technical that if you don't do it right, you should really just stick to conventional. Can we kind of generalize it? Is that a word? I don't know. Generalize? Yeah. Yeah. Gener- I got oh, you. Yeah. Huh. Uh, <laughs> can, we, uh, can we typically say, like, somebody who squats with a wider stance and they're more comfortable is probably going to do better at sumo deadlifting? More likely, or, yeah. Or hack squats with a wider stance. You know, whatever it is. Like, if their comfort position is wider, they'll typically be better at sumo deadlifting. Yeah, I, w- I would say that's a safe generalization, particularly, like, if you watch how people walk. Some people got that duck foot. Mm-hmm. Your hips are opened up. Yep. Yeah. So guess what? You're probably going to love just bloop right down onto that bar and you're ready to pull. If your feet are even a little bit is that pigeon toed? Is that what that is? Uh like uh, they're in yeah. a little bit. Sure. Yeah. For today it is. Yeah. Sounds yeah. great. Yeah. <laughs> um then conventional is probably going to be the way to go because your hips are just not going to like that rotation. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's a pretty good way to look at it. Yeah, I, I start to pick up on those things on myself like i i don't have a wide squat anymore mm-hmm. and uh and i pull better conventional so it just kind of clicks for well, me your feet are like straight yeah when you squat i was like wow my adductors <laughs> and hip flexors would be wrecked but like if you turned them out your ass would probably be just destroyed like your upper hip yeah yeah and that's almost always where my injuries are what do you know yeah uh all right so we talked a little bit about bracing and belts um when do you think somebody should add a belt in their training as far as like, uh, you know, from just starting out to being advanced, like where is that implemented for you? 
So I wait. I, I personal train and coach for a living, and I wait until they ask about a belt. Okay. Because if you haven't even thought of it, you probably don't need it. Now, the moment you ask about it, there's probably a little bit of time left. Unless you've been, like, looking at Instagram and you're like, yo, Larry Wheels is really cool. He's wearing a belt. I need a belt. Exactly. Yeah. Like, no, that's bullshit. But if all of a sudden you're like, hmm, my back's pretty fatigued. Is there anything I can do about that? Like, so, there's this thing called a belt. (laughs) So, you relate, you relate it to fatigue? Yes. Um, As your quads, your hams, your glutes get stronger and stronger... Yes, your core can get stronger with them to a point, but humans were meant to run long distances. Like, we evolved so that we could hunt a mammoth, and it would sweat to death, overheat, and die. Not put 700 pounds on our back and squat it for one. Like, we were meant for a long activity, not a short, heavy one. Okay. So, at a certain point, those muscles in your lower back and your core, they're going to get really tired. And when that happens... You need to mitigate that fatigue with something. So I think a belt is probably the safest way to do it, and it's literally like adding an extra layer of your core to protect your spine. Okay. So let's say you're, um, let's say you're a 500 pound squatter. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you want to hit um, 455 for your top set, and your top set goal is three reps. Okay. Where are you implementing a belt as you're warming up and getting ready to hit that 455? So super generally, probably 80% of my goal for the day. So if I'm looking at 455, maybe like three and a quarter, 365, I'd put on a, a belt, hit it for a single, and then go 405 for a single, 455 for three. Okay. Um, but usually 80%. That way you're warming up everything, not just, hey, I got my belt. You don't want to become dependent on it. Yeah. Um, but 70, 80% of your training value for that day, if you're planning on it being belted. Yeah, I think there's a psychological effect to it. Uh, oh, so yeah. for me, um, when I put on a belt, uh, it tells me like, okay, I'm serious. Because I, I train beltless. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I've been using a belt when I, when I lift with Ryan. Um, just to try to keep up mm-hmm. um, because I am stronger with one. But for the better part of three years, I really haven't used a belt. I don't feel like I need it. I don't feel like my training style warrants it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I want to put more emphasis, me personally, on building my low back through these movements. Yeah. Um, but when, when I am dialing something in for a top set, I want the movement to be very similar to how that top set's going to be. Mm-hmm. And my movement with a belt, whether it doesn't seem like much, uh, is different than my movement without one. For sure. So, you know, you practice how you play. Yep. Um, so at 365, it would make sense. Mm-hmm. You know, and then 405, you're going to take it a little bit more seriously. You yep. know, you're really going to focus on your breathing, your walkouts, stabilizing the bar, and then, you know, you have your, your top. So you, you would say that that's normal? Say, yeah, I'd say that's a, a safe, like, average of what you'd see. Um, the biggest thing is you don't want to become psychologically dependent on that belt where oh okay i'm safe because you can actually load at a certain point it's like straps you can Mm. get a super physiological load by adding that belt you're literally adding extra muscle is what your body thinks it is to stabilize your spine so you could almost consider training with a belt and without a belt different variations of a movement i would i actually program beltless versus belted 
Okay. Um, and I think it's because it it does accrue so much more fatigue without the support or ah uh, yeah you know what I mean there. Yeah, I, I've always been a train uh, a fan of training um, movements that I'm I suck at. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if if at one point uh, I was really good at belted squats, I was really bad without one, and that's really when I went you know okay i don't need the belt anymore yep. and i'm gonna get good without it um but like certain movements like uh dips i i wasn't very good at and then um you know when i was able to to, to bench over 400 pounds i was doing three plates for four sets of 15 um because I, I i yeah because yeah. i hyper focus on being bad at something yep. and i want to be good at it and then once i get good at it especially if it's an accessory movement i trash it Yep. I don't do it anymore, and I move to something else that I'm bad at, like overhead pressing, yeah. and uh, <laughs> and I focus on that until I'm good at that, and then I trash it. And I move, I keep yeah. moving on. And it's uh, it's sort of like why you need variation as you get more and more advanced. Like I got to the point when I could squat 500 pounds that I could also good morning 500 pounds. That's it's really crazy. Yeah, and like I'm sure it was ugly. Like don't get me wrong, this is before we filmed anything, so you're you know. lucky. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Nobody knows this. You got to take. Me still, out I mean, just to be in that position and move the weight the way uh, you know, to move that kind of weight is just impressive. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, the takeaway there is all right. This is no longer translating to my squat, so mm-hmm. I need something that's going to give me less fatigue that I suck at, mm-hmm. probably. And let's say it's a stiff leg. I now have to do 225 for three sets of 10 instead of 500 for a set of three. I can do that more often, build more hamstring, and get more into my squat than if I kept trying to get my good morning to 550 because it's probably going to get there before my squat is. Yeah. Uh, So while we're on equipment, before we deviate too far, uh, knee wraps or sleeves? Are you competing or no? I mean, if you're not, sleeves. Um, knee wraps have not been proven to be safer and that's what you've always safer in in the joint uh yeah or safer in general because you're lifting more weight both um so for both the knee the hip and the spine um because you're able to load much more weight on the bar Mm -hmm. um, particularly i think a lot of people aren't necessarily using knee wraps for a complete depth squat so you can really load weight on that bar if you're only doing like a three-quarter squat but that's a lot of compression so i think for the most part if you're going to use sleeves wraps if you're not competing in powerlifting and you're not competing in wraps why even put them on like sure you could do it as like a training variation to get to hold more weight on the bar it could be like an overload technique exactly yeah Yeah. like just like a slingshot yep yep okay um but otherwise sleeves all the way a purist I think there is nothing like putting a big-ass weight on your back, going down to the hole, and not knowing if you can get that back up, and then doing it for six. Like, with no wraps, no support. So like, it's just you and the bar type of thing. Yeah, and, like, yeah. sleeves, I don't feel like takes away from that. It's like a heavy sock. <laughs> okay, so when I think of knee wraps, I think that the purpose of a knee wrap uh, is to, comp- obviously, to compress the knee. Uh, and th- there's a difference between how bodybuilders use knee wraps and powerlifters use knee wraps. Yes. So in powerlifting, you know, we wrap the knee so tight that, you know, sometimes our skin will actually bleed from how tight the wraps are. Yeah. Uh, actually, we would chalk them to make sure that they don't even slide. Uh, but bodybuilders will wrap looser, and they do it as more of a support, a comfort. Um, you know, it's kind of like that kid in Charlie Brown with the blanket. 
You know, it's just uh, oh, you yeah. know, it just makes them feel good, <laughs> yeah. and so that way, don't it's something one less thing that they have to worry about when they're trying to do you know, um, you know maybe a, a big drop set on squats yes. or leg press or something like that. Um, but to me, the the purpose of wrapping a knee in in anything to do with strength is to allow your body to sit back further. Okay, so I've always noticed that I have more hamstring activation when I wrap my knees. Hmm. And that, to me, that's the reason why I'm able to lift more, is because my positioning has now changed. Uh, not necessarily because of the compression of the knee to give you a rubber band effect. Yes. It, it does, but I also think the rubber band effect is from loading the hamstrings further. And I think that's why if you look at powerlifters that mainly lifting gear, um, their quads tend to be smaller, but their hamstrings are massive. massive. Yeah, Their hamstrings, their erectors. Yeah. Yep. That posterior chain. Um, And I think you hit the nail on the head. There is the way that you wrap it. And I've been in powerlifting so long that my bias is towards thinking about knee wraps for a powerlifter. So I'm thinking about cranking that thing down on there. Mm -hmm. But like, I'm thinking about, uh, we used to have a guy on the team. He was the biggest guy on the team at the time. And his purpose was to wrap our knees. He didn't compete. Oh God. Yeah. You had like a rap ogre. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like you think about like Branch Warren and Johnny Jackson and those old like videos, they'd have like, uh, oh, it was probably Gasp that made their wraps or something. Uh, I don't yeah, know, something for like sure. that. But they would wrap them for like hack squats. And mm-hmm. you say you're able to sit back into that hack squat. That makes a lot of sense. And I think if you know what you're doing, by all, this is just like the deadlift sumo versus conventional. If you know what you're doing, wrap that knee up because there's also a psychological factor just like the belt. Well, I think keeping everything in its place is really important on these heavy sets. I mean, these yeah. guys, those guys were crazy strong. I mean, Johnny Jackson and Stan Efferding were the strongest, you know, bo- uh, pro bodybuilders mm-hmm. of all time. And they were even, like, competing against each other in, in touring uh, for bodybuilding shows and stuff. Um, but but keeping that knee aligned um, when you have five, six, seven plates on a hack squat can be really important for safety. And it takes the mind out of it, so you're not worrying yes. about it. So you can just crank on the muscle. Well, and like you're, you even mentioned, like, they'll keep it on for that drop set. Yeah. The amount of fatigue in the muscle was one thing. The amount of fatigue in your mind is completely different. Mm. I like to train drop sets with people so they become more resilient. Mm. Like. Put some some, hair on their chest. Yeah, exactly. Do something hard when it feels shitty, and the next time you have to do that, it feels less shitty. So, (laughs) you know, that's an interesting uh, thing. You know, we have a lot of different customers that come through our doors, uh, so I get to meet a lot of people. Um, You can always tell when somebody's training intensity is not up to par. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I, I feel like, especially if you're younger, you can kind of get away with a crappier diet. You can get away with a little less sleep. Uh, but you can still look and be pretty strong if your training intensity is high. Yes. Um, and as you get older, that intensity becomes more difficult because you become more scared. Uh, your body hurts more, you know, especially if you're doing labor for a living. Um, yeah. But do you think that that's kind of like the end-all, be-all in getting results in fitness? Intensity? Mm-hmm. I think really close. I think it's intent intent yeah so having a purpose to what you're doing because like and i actually i I can't make this statement with a um a great amount of validity because i'm about to bring up mike israel he trains like super specifically rpe style this many reps shy of failure this is how often and he's got it to like a 
robot type of math. He even has books on it now. When you don't have that intensity, are you still going to get that strong? Are you still going to get that amount of value? Or are you just kind of inflating the muscle to a certain point? Like, you know, so I, I think both concepts work. But I also think that that's why people are so dependent on PEDs. Yeah. Is because the, the stimulus becomes much lower when you For have... For the activation. Yeah. yeah. W- and, and you can get away with uh, less intensity and more frequency. Yeah. Right? I mean, it'd keep you healthier longer, too. It could. Arguably. Um, you know, let's, let's keep going on that. Um, <clears throat> I've always... You know, uh, we'll get your take on it first. Uh, how important do you think it is for people to build a strong natty base? Oh, good God. If you hop on PEDs and uh, you're going to notice I'm really big on the psychology of all these things as well. Um, but if you hop on PEDs first thing, you're never going to know how hard it is to gain muscle, to gain strength like over a five, six year, seven year span where you only put a hundred pounds on a lift versus when you get on a PED and you could have been training for 10 years. Then you put in one year from there, you put a hundred pounds on that lift. That is not the same. Now take that PED away. How shitty does it feel to gain five pounds on your squat in a year? How likely do you think you are to stick with it? Yeah. This is such a weighted topic for me because I, I don't know if anybody is ever ready for PEDs, right? Uh, yeah. And, and I don't know if they're 100% necessary, you know, in strength sport either because you have guys um, that, you know, you can you can argue that the USAPL is not drug-free. You can say whatever you want, but ultimately they're drug-tested, and mm-hmm. that's the closest we're going to get Uh in, in finding natural strength sport, no doubt. right? Like we, we can't do much more, at least not cost effectively. And, um, so the argument is that like the USAPL always just throws away their drug tests. They don't even do them, you know, or at least back in the day they didn't, but ultimately this is the most we can do to hold people accountable. Yeah. Um, but if you can't figure out why you need to sleep, why you need to, you know, for strength, we have to uh, make sure that we're constantly fueled. Mm-hmm. And not just fueled for performance, but fueled for recovery. And those are two different things. Um, but there's a lot of small details in that. Yeah. Like, I found that when I was in college, uh, zinc and magnesium, when I took that before I went to bed, I slept like a freaking baby. I slept eight hours. I woke up. I felt amazing. And I went on with my day. Mm-hmm. Um when I was really getting close to nationals, I would force myself to take a one-hour nap throughout the day as well as my eight hours of sleep, mm-hmm. okay, on top of easily five, 6,000 calories. Um, but you have to micromanage things more. Now, if you're at like an average amount of strength and you decide to put PEDs in, in to your, uh, into your regimen, when, when you want to get stronger, the only thing you know how to do is add more PEDs. Yeah. Okay. And that leads down a really dark path of dependency. And my biggest fear in a lot of people using PEDs is they were never anything without them. Yep. And they're not going to figure out how to take it to the next level with them. Yep. And, you know, there's a really big conversation that's kind of been like, I want to say like 30 years in the making and more of like the health nutrition medicine side of this. And it's with liposuction. Okay. 
the incidence of people regaining their weight after uh, oh oh my god liposuction gastric bypass wow sorry um so after gastric bypass the incidence of people gaining all that weight back was is absolutely enormous it's because they don't have the skills to continue at that body weight and continue to thrive and a PED is the same thing. It's like you only need a handgun, but you were only taught how to throw a grenade. <laughs> like, yeah. like it's just not appropriate. Yeah. And so if you don't have the skills to back that up, then you are using the wrong tool for where you are at. And it's a tool. That's yeah. the thing. I, uh, I I always find that the guys that are the most successful in the top level of strength sports, and and, and typically the top levels are untested. So whether they're using mm. stuff or not, it doesn't matter. They're lifting in untested feds. But they almost all have a great track record of competing naturally. Yes. The bodybuilders, the powerlifters, Both. the strongman guys, you know, they all have a great track record. And um, most of them have an athletic background too. But they learned how to micromanage the details so they're not dependent on the PEDs. Yeah. And, and you know, yeah, maybe you need a certain amount to get to that, you know, Mr. Olympia or, you know, the number one powerlifter or strongman in the world. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That, I'm never going to get to that level. So I'll never, <laughs> you know, I'll never really know. Um, but, yeah, I just wanted to get your take on that because I, I think it's something that largely is overlooked. Uh, do you think that there's, like, a general time that people should – if they're going to consider it, like there's certain markers that they need to meet. Um, so I, I know how you're asking this and the way that I see it probably isn't looking at the same marker that you are. And I would fact check me on this cause I haven't looked this up in a while, but your endocrine system, it essentially finishes forming when you're about 26 as a male mm-hmm. and it's probably a little younger as a female. Um, I'm not sure women tend to develop a little bit faster, Especially Uh, mentally. (laughs) Yeah, that'd be a lot faster. Um, But the age of 26. So whenever you're taking testosterone, whenever you're using PEDs, I'm using like anabolics and androgenics for this conversation. People don't usually mean caffeine as a PED whenever they're having this talk. Um, If you allow that endocrine system to completely form, there's, at least from what I've read and what I've gathered over the years, less of a risk of um, infertility. There's less of a risk um, psychologically because, like, some of those drugs can really um, – they can jack you up. Like, yeah. you got to be pretty real about it. Um, but letting your body form first and then adulterating it, like, you, I don't know. I, I don't think there's a whole lot of things that you would throw – a major growth factor into before the structure is done growing. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, to, to compound on that, um, the, the people that build these strong bases tend to not fluctuate when they do, if they were to decide to, to take PEDs. So, mm-hmm. and, and of course you're going to get stronger or recover better when you take them. Um, but you, when you have somebody who can only bench, let's say 300 pounds mm-hmm. and they want to take PEDs, right? So they might get big, they might bench 400 pounds and like, yeah, you know, they're huge. They took Anadrol, you know, their face is all puffy and you know, they got the acne going and yep. you know, they lose their hair like me. Um, <laughs> but at 16, yeah, uh, you know, you you're blessed with good things and bad, uh, but those guys, when they stop taking the stuff, 
they're back down to a 300 pound bench. Mm-hmm. They're back down in body weight. They don't look like they lift anymore, it, like just how they were when they started. Um, so I've always found that the guys that built that natty base and really understood what they were doing and why prior to taking PEDs, just A, they're healthier when they do it, and B, you know, they, they just don't have these crazy fluctuations. And when they do spend time being naturally after taking PEDs, they still look like they lift. Mm-hmm. They still look good. They have a great base still. And yes. they're able to continue building even though they're natural at that point in their life. Yes. Would you want to build your house without a foundation or with one? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So uh, I guess we'll have to dip off the PEDs there. Uh, It's (laughs) just, uh, you know, this this is probably like the sixth podcast that we've talked about PEDs. And uh, I just don't understand why the majority of people take them. Um, They don't either. Yeah. Yeah. That's an absolutely 100% fair point. Um, I I always think it's interesting when people take uh, drugs that were designed for horses and they have, you know, two months in the gym. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. Like, it, it's a serious thing. Like, longevity is king in the sport, which is another thing. Like, I've always found, uh, I think the, the Mr. Olympia age range tends to be, like, 40 to 45. Yeah. It's like, a, bit, it, it's it's a, a good older bit older. Because you need that muscle maturity. Uh, and same thing with powerlifting. I mean, I think when Donnie Thompson broke the record, um, he was 42? I don't know exactly, but he was around his 40s. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it just took that long for him to get there. I think also a lot of um, 17, 18, 19-year-olds, like, I mean, hell, we were probably just like this. I know I was. We wanted that world record, and it's probably to prove that, you know, we're worthy of something or, you know, let's not go too far down this <laughs> bullshit rabbit hole. But whenever you're 35, 40 years old, you've lived long enough to understand what it takes to accomplish something like this and you've laid more bricks than that 19 year old even knew existed you've failed with more bricks than that 19 year old even knew existed and that's why it takes that long to get to that point yeah i think a lot of young guys um want the notoriety they want Mm -hmm. the limelight um they don't want it for themselves no. And especially with social media, you want people to clap for you. Yep. And, uh, you know, it does play a psychological effect. Um, but let's let's segue and uh, dip into, um, you know, there's different ways to overload your training, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so you can overload in weight. Yep. You can overload in, uh, well, I guess you would say you could technically do it with, like, speed, right? Like, you can uh, measure it. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, in, in the speed of the lift, yep. right? Um, you can decrease rest time. That would be a way to kind of overload your training in my eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, you have range of motion, which is another yes. way to overload your training. Uh, what's your What's your take on those? Where do you tend to lead with your clients and yourself? So, I don't know. I was counting yeah, as I think you there said was four. Yeah. Um, I've broken it down with actually like, I think she's 70 years old this client that I have, and we came up with six different intensity techniques. You know if she's 60, she's oh, going to kill you. Oh, she's 60. See? Uh, 75. Jesus, okay. sorry. Um, yeah, she's, she's pretty cool to learn from. Um, I get to teach her powerlifting and learn, like, everything else, which yeah. is really cool. Um, but we came up with, I think it was six at the time, and you hit four of the big ones. Range of motion, overall weight, 
decrease rest time. Um, uh, what was the other one you used there? Volumes, another one. Vo yeah. Yeah. Uh, which would be, I, I think, to be fair, we can call that tonnage. Yes. Okay. Yes. So That'd it's measurable. Easy. Yes. Okay. Easier way to put it. Um, I think they all come in. I don't remember the two off the top of my head right now. I have a list somewhere at home. Um, but they all come in at different times. And this is just like changing your uh, your your variant. Yeah. And it's, all right, I've done enough weight on the bar, but I can't breathe well going up the steps. Well, now you have a different weakness keeping you from your ultimate goal, whether it be muscle building, fat loss, or uh, strength. It's all this give and take cycle and knowing this is the one I haven't done. This is now where I need to go. So you've done weight on the bar. Now it's probably time to go to rest time. That way you can get more of a stimulus from less of a stimulator. Okay. And the more that you can do with less, the longer you're going to be in this game. Fair. I really wanted you to dig into range of motion. And Okay. Um so yeah, for those of you guys listening, uh, right now Stephen uh, hasn't been having the best of training lately because he has a torn pec. Uh, you know he's got a nice incision scar here, uh, and he did that through increasing the range of motion on a max effort bench press. And when I say max effort, it was a, a true one rep max, uh, or, or at the time like that was a, a 90, 95 percent movement, right? Yeah. Um, so it was pretty high up there on what he was capable of handling. Uh, and he used a bar that would increase his range of motion when he came down to his chest. Uh, when I really screwed my back up, uh, and, and this caused me years of pain and issues, um, they wanted to do surgery on it. They wanted to inject me with the cortisone shots. You know, they wanted to do all that stuff, and I refused it. But when that happened, it was from overloading the range of motion on the deadlift by doing a deficit deadlift. And as you heard me talking about earlier, I already have a, an issue with getting to the bar properly on on a deadlift so then i was deadlifting this day i, I had deadlifted and then my very my accessory was deficit deadlifts yep probably not the smartest thing <laughs> it was in a cold gym we we're wearing hoodies and beanies and all that yep. it wasn't climate controlled and uh and and that is what ended me competing seriously in powerlifting uh so both of our pretty serious injuries came from overloading the range of motion but you're still in favor of it. Yeah, and so there's a time and a place. So in a cold warehouse, whenever you've had a history of hip and low back pain, probably not. I didn't at that point, though. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So I would say if for me, I was overloading two of those variables. Okay. I was overloading – well, actually, it was supposed to be on a straight bar. And I had just gotten this new bar. I was so excited to use it. I'm training two other people, and I didn't adjust any of my training. And that's part of the reason that range of motion can be so useful is you can use less to get it. But if you screw it up, you're going to hurt yourself. And so I would say range of motion is probably the – it might actually be the most advanced way to increase your overloads. Um, so like Dan Green, he'll pull flat. And then he'll pull one and a half inches, I believe. And then he'll go all the way to a three and a half inch deficit. And don't get me wrong. Don't train like him. You will probably get hurt unless you're being trained by him. And mm -hmm. like, cause everyone has their art, but, um, I overloaded the weight. So that's our bar weight is one technique. 
our range of motion is another. And so I think if you're loading one of those, it's fine. But as soon as you start to play with two or more of them, you're really running a high risk. Yeah. Um, it's like, uh, let's give my car a fuel boost and then let's take it out on a rainy day. Something's going to slip. So, um, yeah, could, I mean, could you say that range of motion for beginners, uh, if they want to um, to kind of experience that and train that way, it may be better as an accessory? Yes, undoubtedly. And I think we talked about this before the podcast as well. Don't go heavy. Don't try really hard at something you're doing for the first time. Mm. Like, you don't even know when you might slip. You need to learn where the pitfalls are before you go and try and get really good at it. Oh, you were talking about it with uh, like your first, second, third week of max effort. Yeah. And then by the fourth week, you could actually hit something hard. Well, it's the same thing. Your body doesn't know how to move in that new position. Like if you're grabbing groceries from the floor, you're not going to put yourself on a deficit and then go grab them. That's absolutely ludicrous. So like it's the same thing for a bench press. I'm not going to put myself up on a platform and then try to push myself up off the ground. Your body doesn't even know how to get in or out of that position, let alone with a heavy load. So if you're going to use range of motion, make sure you know what it feels like first because that's where I screwed up for sure. Well, what do you think increasing range of motion really does? Um, because if we're looking at it like from a muscle building standpoint, um, I mean, I don't see bodybuilders doing – you know, cambered bar bench presses and deficit deadlifts, and they have the most muscle in their frame. Um, so what do you think extending the range of motion is even doing for a benefit? Nervous system change. And so that's the biggest difference between a um, performance athlete and a muscle building type of athlete. Um, basically, any time, it's like the idea of neuroplasticity, any time that your body has to get into a new position, it's going to send new connections to that muscle, and it's going to get a deeper stretch. Um, we'll say for the duffalo bar. Sorry, I went to a specific example without giving it. Um, as I go into that deeper stretch, that muscle becomes more, or more accustomed to that new position. Now, when I go from that extended range of motion back down to my original range of motion, my body will likely feel safer and more comfortable in that position because that's not as far as it's gone. Right. That's why you prepare for something that's harder or worse than what you're going into. So, um, bodybuilders, they might not need it. If, yeah. <laughs> well, if you need a different stimulus to me, uh, you know, he's making good arguments for increasing range of motion. I think if you need a, a bigger stimulus for a muscle group, uh, just change the lift like we talked about earlier for sure like i i think that that's a safer i think it's a smarter way to do it i think it's going to have better muscle building uh benefits and again i i'm not a top power lifter mm -hmm. and i'm never going to be you know a number one guy so maybe a number one guy is going to have a different approach to something like that but i think for the average gym goer i think instead of doing deficit deadlifts um you know find something else that you can push your body and that's going to keep it in a safer position average person absolutely yeah. Um, uh, there, there's a few more things that I think are worthy of discussing. Uh, what's your stance on cutting weight for meats? Mm. Don't do what I do. <laughs> well, well let's, yeah. let's talk about what you do then. Um, so, A, I haven't competed in like three or 
four years, um, which is a whole different conversation. But I would basically get as much weight on my frame as I could, and then I would cut down from whatever the maximum amount of weight that I thought I could cut would be. The idea being that I could have a higher total at a lighter weight class. You have to have every single variable of your life under control to do that remotely safely. I don't know how Kevin Oak and Ben Polak do their water cuts so well, like 40 pounds. Your injury risk goes through the roof because you're depleted. Mm -hmm. And particularly, your joints do not replete from the dehydration that you're going to incur. Well, I think most of anybody who's watching this is probably not at the level of of those two guys that's very fair right so let's um bring it back a little bit yeah let's let's <laughs> let's go back to you know ipf and usapl weight classes are now different than traditional powerlifting in america mm -hmm. weight classes but let's say uh you let's say somebody's 215 pounds mm -hmm. they want to compete in 198 uh it lives now yeah well we're gonna go to traditional weight classes okay. so we'll call it one 198 uh if they were your client what would you advise said 213 yeah that's fine okay. 213 to 198 um so if they are really advanced 10 percent is the absolute highest amount that i'm comfortable with and that's because i did about 13 percent myself and it was pretty risky so if i'm gonna do that for somebody else or with someone else i'm gonna make it less of a risk because i wasn't that successful at any more than that five percent is what I would say for most 24-hour weigh-ins. Um, two and a half percent for... Two-hour? Yeah. yeah. You really can't, like, it needs to be, like, a big shit for a two-hour weigh-in, and that's it. Otherwise, it's too much weight, and you're you're just really uh, running a lot of risk. All right. So I was hoping that you were going to go somewhere else with it. All right. And Throw so, so I'm just going to go there. Yeah, let's so, do it. So I asked you a question just to hear myself talk. And... Uh, <laughs> So, I don't think that unless you're at a national level meet, uh, I don't think you should cut weight at all. And I've competed uh, back when the weight classes were 198. I've competed so many times at 202, and I didn't care. Mm -hmm. I didn't care because powerlifting and strength sports are an individual uh, sport, and I always thought that getting in. Uh, you know, my highest uh, squat, I think, was 683. Uh, getting in that squat at 202 and nailing it, to me, built the mental confidence that, yeah, if I cut four pounds and make 198s, I'm still going to nail that squat. Now, if I were to cut weight, it's another variable, right? So you're talking For about sure. risk of injury, but you're also talking about confidence. And then you're talking about fuel, right? So maybe I would have to restrict myself. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't be able to eat what I wanted to eat uh, to fuel because this is a performance sport. So if you start to restrict yourself due to a weight class and you're an amateur, I think you're an idiot. Yeah. Like you're, 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 you're holding back so much and you should never increase risk of injury or decrease your total based on fitting a, a weight class for a local meet. Yes. There's no competition there. Agreed. And if you're not first, and, and I don't mean to be condescending at that, but like in the grand scheme of competition, you know, nowadays you have a, a 198er that'll squat, you know, 700s. 
And so if you're squatting 500, which is still a, awesome. a phenomenal squat, but why, why cut weight for that? And I never made sense for that. The only meet that I've ever cut weight for was my last nationals. And I went from 215 to uh, the goal was 198. I ended up at 193 or four, uh, which meant I was able to eat going into the meet, Mm -hmm. which was a big variable because we were in Baton Rouge, Louisiana and going back into eating. Of course, you're not going to eat, you know, steak and rice. So I started eating a lot of carb and salt foods. Well, yeah. I, couldn't, I couldn't get into my bench here. Yep. So my first two attempts, we couldn't even get the shirt all the way on. And I missed the two attempts. And luckily, um, you know, my training partner at the time was able to keep cranking on the shirt uh, between between lifts. And we were able to get it all the way on for my last attempt. And I hit my opener. Okay. So you so, left two lifts essentially there on the platform. Yeah. Because you missed your first two. Right. Uh, now, luckily, my opener was still... 75 pounds heavier than everybody else's yeah. third. So that was the only lift I, I had some success in and I barely got it. Um, so to me, it, I've always found that it's just so much more risk involved in cutting and it just never, never really made sense. Yeah. And you know, you, you kind of got to a, the basic concept of why someone would cut then. <clears throat> if you're just starting out, you're absolutely right. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. If there's not money or a QT on the table, if you can qualify in a lower weight class and then compete up a year later, okay, go ahead and cut. But that's not something a beginner is really worried about. Right. That's someone who's like an intermediate and they know they're on the cusp of hitting something big. Right. If there's if there's money on the line. Different story. Completely different. I cut 20... Oh my god! I thought I was gonna die for the U.S. Open. Cut like twenty-four pounds in six days, and my wife Lexi was like carrying me out of an LA fitness sauna, and yeah. we had flown, and I like I had to take Dramamine because I was getting sick, and like the amount of different variables. So like there was thirty thousand potential, or there was a shitload of money for me at least at the time. Yeah. And that's the only reason I did it. If anyone endangers their own health, like, you need to really check your own ego unless it's going to put, you know, food on the table. Yeah. And it's just um, it's just sad because I, I never see anybody at a amateur level cut weight and hit their all-time best. <laughs> like, it's uh, – they work opposite of each other. Yes. Be comfortable. Lift a couple pounds over your weight class. Hit your best numbers. And then, if you're really concerned about the weight class, come back. Hit that same number five pounds lighter in the next weight class now. Yep. Right? It, it takes all the stress. And to me, uh, I've always found, like, your, your strongest and your top guys are typically very muscular in mm-hmm. strength sports. But I've always found that strength is more mental than anything else. And in order to build that, that mental stability you have to continually build your confidence Mm -hmm. and building your confidence largely has to do with having a successful track record. So if I want to hit a five or 600 pound squat, I'm better off doing it at 202 pounds and then coming back six months later and smoking it at 198 and working on my total for the rest of the movements. Uh, It just, um, 
it just has never made sense to me. And I've followed that for, you know, for the 12 years I've been lifting, uh, 10 years competing. Like it just never, it never clicked for me on why everybody does it. And when you try to talk them out of it, they look at you like you have three heads. Well, if they don't think they're doing anything wrong, they don't really want to hear about. They're almost it. all coached. Oh yeah. Yeah. They, they have very, very poor coaching yeah. and local level coaching, um, is not the greatest. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. We'll leave so, that one there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, we'll talk. Uh, you know, we don't. Uh, in, in comparison to your other lifts, you don't have the world's greatest bench press. No. Like your your deadlift is is impressive. Your squat is impressive. Um, your bench, due to injuries, uh, miss lifts. Um, you know some other stuff. I feel like you've always kind of left some weight on the bar when it comes to your bench press. Um, sort of. I think I'm. At, I'm. I got to get bigger if I want that to go up. Well, it, it, to put things in comparison, your your best squat was seven sixty five. Seven fifty five. Yep. At okay. two ten. Okay. So my best squat um, was raw. I didn't use wraps, but it was five sixty two. Yeah. Uh, but I've benched four ten and meet. And that's pretty close to your best yeah, bench at 430 yeah. on that meet yeah 435 in comp. so um you know in the grand scheme of things i feel like your your bench is probably the least impressive of the three 100 percent. so um Man, especially now <laughs> yeah with the pec tear <laughs> uh but what movements would you say are best for building your bench press <laughs> so bodybuilders have it right building muscle in the chest building muscle and the shoulders building muscle and the triceps and for the love of god work your biceps like there is no substitute for muscle mass on the upper part of the frame for the bench press you can't out arch a little muscle yeah yeah it's a good point um does any have any more significance than the other exercise or uh, just like let's uh, so we can talk about uh, muscle group and then you can go into exercise. Yeah. Um, so when my bench was the best that I had it, it was actually before I competed. I weighed a hundred and sixty pounds and benched like three fifty, and Good. it was touch and go. But like you know, it's still double. It's a lot of weight. Yeah. yeah. And my squat was like four oh five. But my chest was big for 160, 170-pound kid, right. whatever the heck I was. And, like, I did a lot of bodybuilding accessories. Like, my shoulders were very capable. My overhead press was very strong. My pull-ups, very comfortable. I think symmetry is the biggest thing, and that's why bodybuilders are so good with the bench press, yeah. um, is they've built everything around here because the bench isn't just your packs. Yeah. It's not just your triceps. If those two are strong and your shoulders aren't, well, guess what? You can't actually use both of them because the shoulders are the mediator of the two. Yeah, I've always found that movements that reverse the bench press tend to have a lot of success for me building the bench press. Yeah. Uh, so one of the, the machines that I like to use uh, is the chest-supported hammer strength machine. Oh, yeah. And I've always felt like when that's strong, when I'm using three, four plates on that on a consistent basis, I'm usually also pressing really well too. Yep. Uh, 
now obviously you need to press to gain your press mm -hmm. right um but having a strong back can be so important for having a good press like you don't often see somebody with a large back and a big yoke with a tiny bench press yeah it, it's rare um so that chest supported um like dumbbell rows mm -hmm. and um and barbell rows i've found are really you know the big keys so in in geared lifting we always said like the lats were really important for a, a geared bench press um but for raw benching i feel like it's just slightly up a little bit further because you're not tucking as hard so i feel like the upper shelf of the body is very important for gaining a good bench press and that includes the shoulder yeah and like the lat technically goes from the hip almost all the way up to the neck and so like it's a higher portion of the lat but the trap the rear del um rhomboids ro yeah rhomboids and serratus are super important because you talked about the oppositional muscles um opposing that would be the word that's okay yeah <laughs> um but the more that you can control it on the way down the more likely you are to have success on the way up yeah. um so you nailed it like that upper middle back like you see like that big girthy middle back like dude's probably got a good bench press yeah you're also probably miring a little too much from the way that I said it, but he's probably got a good bench press. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, uh, again, like anything that is the same motion, mm -hmm. whether it's a pressing movement with dumbbells and barbells, right? Obviously that's going to help. Uh, but anything pulling in that same motion is just mm -hmm. training the body to be successful in that, in that pattern, in that movement pattern. And, um, uh, yeah, I think it. I think it's very important to build a good bench press that way. Oh, for sure. And one little piece that you mentioned is chest supported. With the bench press, you're not supposed to be moving your hips a whole lot. So if you can take your hips out of it, mm -hmm. it's going to have a much higher translation to your bench. Yeah, like that's a really important little piece to keep in mind. So there's a uh, an old equipment manufacturer that was out of Millville, New Jersey, and it's kind of a woodsy South Jersey area. Mm -hmm. um, they we had a, a in our little mini gym we had a chest supported row from them it was called a scorpion was the brand and uh it was kind of like hammer strength before hammer strength so it was nice. leverage equipment mm -hmm. um but you could tell it was 70s 80s yeah uh, i mean it was old stuff um but the way they did it in the pivot points of the weights you had to put your feet behind you but your chest was still on the pad. Oh, you had like no help then. From the rest Zero of your body. stabilization. Old machines are so hard. <laughs> the The first time I used it, I woke up in the middle of the night because my my traps were spazzing. Like all of my my lower trap was actually spazzing. That's how much it hurt. That's awesome. And it was it was all yeah. I mean, I absolutely loved it. Obviously, yeah. it was knowing that I woke up from it. Um, but just taking my feet out of the equation and how yep. much pressure that put on my back when I did it. Exactly. And idea. and taking the body English out. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, of course I was still going heavy on it. And it just uh, it, it was an amazing machine. And it just doing that taught me a lot about how I train now. We don't have that machine anymore. Um, but it, it just uh, it was a cool experience. So, um, a couple more things that I kind of want to talk about. Mm -hmm. So what's your stance on cardio for strength athletes? Um, that's a really, really, really good question. And you will see all kinds of information about it. Um, from my Penn state education, we learned about, uh, the inhibition of, different hormones or uh, enzymes that come into play um, when doing cardiovascular at a high level or strength training at a high level and they do directly interfere with one another um, 
that I, I'm meaning in terms of intensity, particularly for cardio. Mm-hmm. If you can't walk up the stairs, your your cardio is inhibiting your strength training. You okay. need to be in good enough shape that you're not winded after you load the freaking bar. Mm-hmm. But if you think you're going to do a two-mile run and then the next day you're going to hit a big squat, you're out of your mind. And you probably don't think that if you've got above a five or 600 pound squat, unless you're like a Saquon Barkley or some shit like that. Cause I right. just don't get those superhumans. But for the rest of us, you got to minimize it a bit. Would you say it's kind of like a seesaw? 100%. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and, and that didn't dawn on me until about 2015 or 16. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's when I was doing a lot of sets of 20 on squats and um, god you hate yourself yeah you just uh you like to find different (laughs) ways to punish yourself um so i was doing sets of 20 and i wasn't completing my sets Mm. not because of muscle fatigue i was out of breath i i couldn't hack it on the lungs so i started running well not only was i getting my sets of 20 but i was working up to four sets of 20 four sets of 20 Mm -hmm. at 325 beltless right so the first set's easy but the once you get all that blood in the muscle and you're still able to crank out those 20 rep sets it's a whole different animal yeah like that nothing made me feel more manly than those sets i i can um i can see it but it was just amazing that my lungs were what was holding me back well you know one of the cardiovascular adaptations um it's like the frank sterling principle not to get in too deep here but the stroke volume or the amount of output of blood that your heart can produce for every single squeeze. That's ultimately what's going to hold you back on those sets. The thing is, if you're looking at a one rep, that is not what's going to hold you back. Yeah. So 20 rep sets, that makes sense, but you probably would have hit a limit at a certain point, um, maybe 385 after weeks and weeks and weeks very very true i tried to do it with 365 and i could not i couldn't even get close i was doing 12 to 15 rep sets and and that's the total volume is just too high Mm -hmm. eventually that becomes too stressful and that's where the seesaw comes into play realistically what you're balancing is stress and when that weightlifting goes up or that amount of tonnage I believe is what we are going to use for That's our fair. volume today goes up. So does your stress. So where does this part of the seesaw have to go? Right. It has to come down. Now, as you start to run, okay, you just have to keep playing that seesaw 20 rep sets. That's a lot more like running, which is more specific to your transition. But for one rep, that's barely even a step. <laughs> so how would you implement cardio? for somebody who wants to get strong or would you at all? I don't. Um, and I argue with myself because I, I think it's a fear of doing something wrong. I think that's one of the hardest parts of coaching actually is, you know, am I doing everything for my athlete's success? Um, and I don't do it for people that are really serious about their strength training. Um, for people that I work with a lot of people in pain. Um, I do actually have them do some, and that's for a very different reason. Um, but in terms of overall brute strength, I think not it's even hit training, especially not hit training. Okay. Um, Cause again, hit much higher on the seesaw for stress. So where does our weight training or our muscle building have to go? It's always, if it's a seesaw, 
they're competitive. And so if you're competing against someone who's at the same skill level as you, are you going to have to try really hard to win or are you going to have to not try at all? And that's the same thing with doing all of that stressful cardio and trying to do that stressful weightlifting is you're going to have to try so freaking hard, it's probably impossible. Could we circle back to what we just talked about with cutting weight? And yes. say that that may be a contributor. Total stress. Yeah. People try to do cardio. They try to melt themselves with the trash bags. Mm-hmm. Um, you, <laughs> that, you, was, that was well done. <laughs> do, you, do you think that that um, could have an influence? Uh, I, I would say it does have an influence. And again, you're looking at the total stress on your system. Um, and it's just like we can circle back even further. Range of motion and adding weight now it's not one variable you're manipulating it's two and that's more total stress so ultimately you always come back to the same seesaw for training and as you get more and more experienced i think that's what you realize is like that seesaw also includes your life it includes oh i just had a kid like that seesaw never stops and there's nothing that doesn't get to end up on the seesaw it's a That's bitch fair. of a playground. That's fair. Um, okay. So powerlifting is made up of squatting, benching, and deadlifting. And anybody with a powerlifting background tends to find one of those movements as the most um, important. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, what do you think is the most impressive feat of strength? And it doesn't have to be one of those three. It could be anything. The most impressive feat of strength. That's a really good question that I have not actually thought about. Um, I'll tell you what, I don't think it's powerlifting. It, uh, the most impressive feat of strength would be somewhere in strongman. Because it involves more than something so direct yeah. and specific? Yeah, like a squat, that barbell is made to stay on your back. An atlas stone? I can't even reach around it. Yeah. Like, and you're picking up a 500-pound stone? Are you kidding me? And you're moving. Yeah. So now, we talked about that seesaw. Yeah. You're going to pull a 50,000-pound truck. That is cardio that is weighted. What in the world are you doing? Yeah, (laughs) I've always found that anybody that competes at a high-level strongman it's just a freak. Yeah. Like, you're just an absolute freak. And not only in size, like, obviously, you know, Brian Shaw and Thor and mm-hmm. all them guys are just massive human beings. But that is, like, the ultimate test of fitness to me. And, and because I'm I'm strength biased, right? So, yeah. obviously, uh, endurance, if you're endurance biased, you're going to say CrossFit. Um, yeah. Because there's a more endurance aspect to it. Um, now, to me, for, for me, it's more of a of a a lift specific thing so when i think of like if i'm scrolling through instagram or if i'm you know in the gym and i see somebody overhead pressing a lot of weight oh yeah i'm like that dude's a freak Mm -hmm. and i'm not talking dumbbells i'm talking barbell over the head with good form yeah Uh, whether it's a a push press or or a strict press it doesn't matter yeah getting that weight over the head And, and to me that's a lift that i've always struggled at uh, I've never done well. I've never gone far into the 200s. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So when I see somebody doing 225 for reps or 275 or 315 for reps, I'm like, that guy's just a different breed. Yeah. Uh, I find it to just be largely impressive. And, and along those lines then, like if we had to give it one lift, my first thought was like an OHP. Mm-hmm. And it's partially because you're pushing something above your head, and that's the most unstable position that the human body has. Our shoulders are meant for multi-direction. They're not so the more range of motion that an area has, the less stability. There's okay. an inverse relationship. That's at every single joint. This thing can move in a ball. That means it can move every direction. How much stability does that have? Yeah. None. Right. And you're going to push a 300-pound circus dumbbell up in the air. You lunatic, you <laughs> absolutely amazing lunatic. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise, it's squats. It's high rep squats. High rep? High rep. It's not the one rep max because, like, yeah, shit can go down, of course. But in one rep, you... Pr- so you think somebody's squatting? I think uh, maybe like five years ago, there was a whole bunch of like strength athletes uh, that did the 20-rep 500-pound challenge. Yeah, and that just Remember came that? back around here did for it? quarantine, like a 405 challenge or something. Oh, they, they dropped it 100 pounds in five years. Yeah. That's cute. Sounds right. They want more people to participate. Uh, well, that was actually the idea. Well, I don't want to see that, though. I mean, you don't want to see it. I want to see the freaks. <laughs> yeah. I agree. Uh, Steroids um, and baseball, yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey. <it's> a, um, <laughs> where were we on that? Yeah, that got off the tracks fast. Um, but, like, squats for reps. Yeah, so have you ever watched in person Ray Williams squat? No, I have not had the pleasure. Yeah, so I've, I've gotten to watch him squat two or three times now. There's nothing like watching that man squat a 1,000 pounds raw. Oh, Raw Nationals, I got to see it. Yeah, so you did get to see yeah, it. Yeah, everyone and was on their feet. The atmosphere. It's unbelievable. Like, it's just his presence. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it, it gives you chills. Uh, he does stuff that no man was doing at the time, and I don't know if anybody's done it since, uh, at least not raw like that, at least not in a tested federation. And um, yeah. it just absolutely phenomenal. I would pick that over, you know, another guy doing 500 for 20. Uh, just because it's such a phenomenal feat of strength, and and nobody's really done it. Well, and I think the flip side of that coin is no one has done it. So that makes it seem something almost like... Um, Superhuman? Yeah, like mysterious. What I love, and this is like completely opinion, like there's no feat of strength that is better than the other. Um, except for CrossFit, that's lower. But I'm just kidding. Um, but when I see someone dig into like a six, seven, eight, nine rep area, that weight's heavy as shit. Yeah. That is probably what you should be training for two or three reps, according to the percentage of your one rep max. Like if we're looking at prior weapons table? It, yeah. Like yeah. that's a really good example of how to do it. But you're going to dig that deep. Like, that person's got grit. One rep, it's easy. Training singles, no problem. But digging into a set, four, five, six, seven, eight reps, that's where some balls are found. Are you big on prior weapons table? Um, to it? start. Yeah. And then I like to transition into RPE once people understand it. Um, and I use RPE in a very bad – everything I do is bastardized. Um, let me but just... it, it, it's a system that works for you and your clients. Yes. And that's the most important part is that you know why you're implementing it. Yes. Uh, I've always been big on pro weapons table. Uh, and that's because uh, I don't know if you remember Nick Mercurio. 
Yeah. Uh, he's the one that taught me how to use it. Uh, mm-hmm. He gave me an hour rundown and sent me on my way. Yep. Uh, so I've always used it mostly to start. Um, but I, I did something called like, uh, it's a form of block periodization, but I, I always called it step periodization okay. where you move to percentages per week instead of a oh. linear wave. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you might go 80, 85, 90, mm-hmm. and then, you know, you might have a deload week and then you might be like 81, you know, uh, 86, 91. Yep. And you might move like that. Um, you know, if, if we're looking at raw percentages of training, where do you find that people build the most, um, the most strength in the percentage range? So it goes by experience level. If you are a, we're just going to give a super general, like five years and under, um, I would say the 60 to 80% range, because you're going to get the stimulus for your nervous system, as well as that muscular aspect, like physiologically for both. Um, As you become more and more experienced, those training loads are too destructive. Hmm. And you just take too much tonnage in one session to recover from. So again, our seesaw becomes unbalanced. So now it turns into the three, the two, the one rep maxes. And that's actually why I didn't do that well, is I never accommodated that. I always wanted to do the five, six, seven, eight reps. I didn't want to do singles and doubles. I think it's kind of boring, to be honest. But that's where the more experienced, higher total, higher... Um, strength performance athletes will get the most strength. If you want muscle building, keep it a little bit lighter, obviously. I've always found that training between 80 and 90 was the ultimate way to build strength. And that's even, not beginners, but like once you're through that beginner stage and you have the movements down. Yeah, once you know how to do the movement. Yeah, properly. Um that you build the most strength within that range. Now, if you look at Prolapin's table, I believe uh, 80% is 20 reps. So you can do mostly 4 by 5 or 5 by 4 is usually how that's divided. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe 90%. Um, it's down to like I think it's, a triple is the most. I it's think like it's one to six reps. Total. Six reps total. Yep. So usually like a three you're by do- two, a two by three. Exactly. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure. I think you're right. Um, so I just find that those rep ranges makes sense to me mm-hmm. um and aside from that i feel like you have enough stimulus to build muscle and you're able to recover right um and then your risk of injury is relatively low yep and that's a big part of it so we talked about longevity right most people when they become experts in their sport they're older yep and now we know that you know training in these uh rep ranges tend to have less risk and you're able to continue to perform the movement properly uh, so for me personally, I just feel that if you want to be strong, you need to train in the 80 to 90% range. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely correct. And there's a reason why too. it's nervous system dominance and strength sports. So it's how well are you familiar with that territory? And if you're trying to get a little bit bigger, um, the, um, uh, muscle building aspect is going to be a little bit better with those like 60 to 80 percent ranges so like a power builder might stick in there a little bit more um and this would be even an in-season off-season conversation so Fair. yeah like sets of six to eight as you're like mm, we can say that about variation too right yes like it's I mean, another it, form of variation yeah but no i mean like variation as far as in-season off-season yeah like so can we just in in one minute Let's make, well, not one minute, because I never do anything that fast. <laughs> um, 
can we just make a very simple generalized program? Yeah, I think we can. Yeah. Right. So off season, you're going to do a compound movement mm -hmm. and it's going to rotate. Yeah. Right. So yeah. a compound rotating movement could be hack squats, could be front squats, sure. could be safety bar squats. Mm -hmm. Right. So you're going to rotate through that stuff. You're going to hit your accessories with some volume. You might work up to top sets. If you're really weak in that pattern, yes. you're probably not going to do top sets. You might do more volume at one weight mm -hmm. because that's what's going to take for you to master volume the movement. Volume intensity, yeah. Yep. And when you're in prep for strength or when you want to peak and test out and be the strongest that you can be, mm -hmm. uh, you're going to increase specificity. Yep. And then you're going to decrease all the extra stuff. Yep. And as you get even closer, you're going to start ruling out your variations, right? So, like, um, if you start prep, you may not be doing hack squats as your first movement, right? Like, that doesn't quite make sense. So, now you're getting more specific. Yes. But you might be using different bar variations, mm -hmm. right? But as you get closer to that meet, you're using more of a straight bar, and you're becoming more specific on what you're actually competing in. Yeah. That's dead on. And you're, and you're decreasing your accessory work to increase your recovery and maximize being able to take advantage of the heavy loads. 100%. Why does there have to be anything more than that? doesn't have to be yeah. until you get to a certain point. To a certain point. Yep. Either the very lowest where you're in a rehab setting or the very highest mm -hmm. when you're looking for that um, top three total, that world record. Those two spectrums have the same, same styles of training in my opinion. Okay. Um, everything else. Because it has to be so detailed. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, uh, last question before we wrap it up. Um, if you had to pick, um, if you had to pick something and it, it was either programming or environment, which one would you pick for strength sports? I'd say environment. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Um, my biggest years for strength training happened when I was competing in 198, just starting. I went from like a 1450 total to a 1750 in 18 months. You actually out totaled me. So I came in second at 198s. You out totaled me at 181. Mm -hmm. It was crazy impressive. Thank you. And at the time, I was just like, more weight. But that was because the guys I was training with were all massive. So I trained with four to six people. And in Central PA, again, we're all corn-fed. We don't have a lot of other stuff to do. So, yeah, we're going to lift some weights. Um, one guy was six foot one, 314 pounds. Um, another was five foot 10, 320 pounds, and he almost benched 600. Um, there was another that I don't even know what his actual body weight is. Um, but, but he wait, was six foot six. But when you're just having like training sessions, you're not competing, you're not testing, like you're just training to get better. You don't put yourself in different weight classes. Huh. We're about to go to the, there's no weight classes in the jungle quote oh. yeah i know right <laughs> um but no like you see things that if you're 150 pounds less in body weight you would never think that 600 pounds is even possible at first but having that influence of just seeing five six seven hundred pound lifts it makes it seem so much less daunting i i just like to compete so for me yeah. environment 
is way more important than programming um, because we, we're talking about variation. We're talking about all these different percents and stuff. But at the end of the day, if you're deadlifting, let's say that's the movement of the day and you're going into deadlift and everybody's deadlifting, you don't want to be the guy they have to strip the plates all for. They don't want to strip off the plates either, especially big guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think environment is very important. My senior year, I walked up to our super heavyweight. I, I don't know if you met him. Uh, and I walked up to him and I knew I was competing in 198s. And I said, I'm going to out total you this year. And everybody laughed at me. I out totaled him. Mm-hmm. I would have out totaled him either way, but he did bomb out. So <laughs> um, I feel for him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, to, to just kind of end that, uh, I think environment, gym environment, if, if you want serious results, you have to train at serious gyms. Yep. Uh, you have to be in the right mindset and you have to be um, you have to be OK with pushing yourself to uh, a peak level. Yes. And and that's on a daily basis. I mean, you don't have to push yourself to the point where you can't recover. That's stupid. Yes. But you have to push your body in order for you to constantly progress. You got to take it one little mini step further every single time you're in the gym. And same thing with calories when you're bulking or when you're Mm -hmm. dieting. It's just less than before or more than before. So this is fun. Yeah, I agree. I got I had so much stuff saved up saved up to talk to you about. So I'm glad we uh we got this one out of the way. I think this is by far our longest one and hopefully um Rebecca has any memory cards left. Uh so if people wanted to contact you to either follow you or for coaching, uh where would you suggest that they go? Uh shoot me an email, uh Steven at Teeters Strength and Wellness. Our website is very close to being finished as well. So if you go onto my Instagram page Steven Teeters, TSW, um, you'll see some of my old lifts, not so much new stuff, and there's a link to our website in there as well. Perfect. So, guys, uh, if you're paying attention to these podcasts, uh, give Steven a follow. Uh, he's a wealth of knowledge, and uh, he's, he's a very strong person himself, so he's been through it. So, thanks, guys.